Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sarah Oppenheimer. On Saturday, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University debuts Sarah Oppenheimer S-337473, an exhibition of a newly commissioned work developed for the Wexner's Peter Eisenman Design Building. Oppenheimer created her new work as a two-year-long Wexner Center Artist Residency Award recipient, period during which she collaborated with The Ohio State University's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering to develop a patent-pending pivot mechanism that allows this new work to rotate at a 45-degree angle. The show opens on Saturday, February 4th, and will be on view through April 16th. One quick note regarding this week's show and our usual image policy. The work is being shot now, as soon as images of the new work are available, probably on or around Tuesday, February 7th. We'll add them to manpodcast.com. Sarah Oppenheimer is an artist who creates installations that engage with both architecture and space. She's previously made work for the Perez Art Museum Miami. There's a work on view there now through April 30th. The Kunsthaus Basel, the Rice University Art Gallery in Houston, the Queens Museum, and the St. Louis Art Museum. A project she is developing for Mass MoCA will debut in 2019. Oppenheimer has also created a permanent installation at the Baltimore Museum of Art. On the second segment, I'll share a segment from my 2016 conversation with Richard Mizrock on his Border Cantos, a book and exhibition on which he collaborated with Mexican composer and performer Guillermo Galindo. Since 2004, and especially between 2009 and last year, Mizrock made pictures along the 2,000-mile-long United States border with Mexico, the latest of his investigations of American deserts. As Mizrock traveled the borderlands, he accumulated discarded objects, such as water bottles, backpacks, clothing, and shotgun shells, and turned them over to Galindo, who made that material into instruments, and who then performed on them. The book Border Cantos is out from Aperture. But first, Sarah Oppenheimer, after the break. The Pulitzer Arts Foundation exhibition Medardo Rosso, Experiments in Light and Form, is one of the most anticipated retrospectives of the season. I'm thrilled to announce that our next live audience taping of the Modern Art Notes podcast will be with the show's two curators, Sharon Hecker and Tamara H. Schenkenberg. Please join the three of us at the Pulitzer on Saturday, February 4th at 11 o'clock. Admission is free. Hope to see you there. The critically acclaimed exhibition Mark Leckie, Containers and Their Drivers, is now on view at MoMA PS1 in Queens. Highlights include the artist's breakthrough film, Fiorucci Made Me Hardcore, a selection of his sound system sculptures, functioning stacks of audio speakers that recall street parties in London, and green screen refrigerator action, a video installation inspired by smart objects and our increasingly technological environment. The New Yorker described Mark Leckie containers and their drivers as, quote, profoundly entertaining. Get more info at momaps1.org and plan your visit today. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and get caught in the current.
And we're back. Sarah Oppenheimer, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. We're going to start in a slightly unusual place this week. I don't usually ask the the guest to start by describing the new work on view at a given place, but but you're a special case. Your work is extremely individual place dependent and functions in that space and on the viewer in ways that are rarely obvious in photographic form. So the new piece is at the Wexner, and it's about halfway up on the ramp on the left for people who know the Wexner, and it's kind of a wedge, what what is usually a wedge-shaped space. What is the new piece made out of? Let's start with materials. I think that Tyler raises a really interesting question, and there is a kind of micro answer and a macro answer. So if we start with micro answer, it is made of aluminum and glass. If we start with a sort of broader answer, I would say the piece is also very much constituted by its architectural envelope. And so the materials become much larger when you start to consider not just how the piece performs in space, but also all of the structural elements that are engaging with the space that are not visible to the viewer. Yeah, you build, you, you, you don't do plinths, you build into space. The, the aluminum is black matte? Yes, it's a black powder-coated matte material. And the glass is reflective? The glass is clear, but given the light conditions on either side of the glass, it will appear mirrored from certain positions and transparent from others. That is one of my favorite things about your work. It's not always possible for the viewer to immediately know whether what the viewer is looking at is mirrored or not. Is this one of, such as the piece in Baltimore, is this one of those kinds of pieces? I think this will be true of the material of the glass. I think that there are other aspects of this piece that will create that that level of uncertainty that aren't about the opticality of the glass. So for example, to be very specific, the, the work changes position and it's the position of the piece changes in response to how people engage with it. People are invited to move it. We should, let me, let me stop you for a, a, a quick moment. When you mean the piece changes position and that people are invited to move it, you mean that they are invited to touch it and swing it around? That's correct. So let's 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 start from the very beginning. People come up the ramp and have the opportunity to enter your space, so to speak. What is their physical experience and what do they see as they kind of make the left turn into Oppenheimerville? So I actually want to start at the very bottom of the ramp. The galleries for people who are less familiar with the Wexner are laid out um, sequentially, meaning as you process through the exhibition space, you necessarily encounter gallery A, gallery B, gallery C, gallery D. And the exhibition is on view concurrently with the Carmen Herrera exhibition that's traveling from the Whitney. And the work is effectively sandwiched between two galleries that are displaying this Herrera's work. And it's extremely interesting that as you process up the ramp, to me, there's a kind of discontinuity in the logic of how you view cohesive artwork. And 
that is central to one's experience in the work. So the, as you process up the ramp, you pass Gallery A and Gallery B, which is this tight wedge space. And in the past several years, I believe, the ramp has been built up quite high to prevent light leak from passing from this atrium-like facade on your right into these galleries on the left. But we have lowered that ramp to be actually parallel with the ground plane outside of the galleries and therefore also parallel with one side of the ramp, the existing ramp wall. And as you walk up the ramp, you start to have this very open vista into this spatial zone where the piece is located. And the, the piece actually extends out over the ramp into into the ramp space as a kind of elongated glass beam that you can gaze down as you process up that ramp. Can I, can I ask something really quick before you go on? So is, is the effect of that construction to let more natural light into the space? Yes, the, there are several logics to that. The, the work, I think there's, a big, there's another question about the, the building at large, which is, uh, I'm going to zoom out a moment about, about this, Tyler. Uh, there was in Eisenman's Peter Eisenman, the architect of the building. Yes, in Peter Eisenman's conception of the building, there was an extensive amount of rhetoric around the grid structure that underlay the building logic, and there was this notion, or t or an, a, a rhetorical notion, I would say, that there were two grids: a, a twelve point two five grid and a sort of zero degree grid and that these grids intersected to create this kind of wedge condition of the galleries. The ramp in some ways lies parallel with what I am referring to as the zero degree grid, although this is the nomenclature is always really confusing to me. And we, I wanted in some ways to reorient the entire kind of axis of the building along this particular ramp north-south line and then twist the, the 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 column the column axis at 45 degrees and what that did is it basically placed these two switch-like elements which is how i'm referring to the um, aluminum glass construction let's say at 45 degrees to the procession up the ramp which means as you walk up the ramp because the ramp height was lowered the glass element reflects the out the facade wall at 45 degrees so it serves as a kind of sightline diversion and the lowering of the ramp wall was required to allow the viewer to see beyond beyond the confine of that gallery space and into the space beyond when you are referring to to the switches in in non-Oppenheimer parlance, that would be the objects you have physically brought to the space. You know, to to an artist with a different language or who preferred a different language, they you know we would say those are the sculptures, those are the 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 installation. So when the viewer gets up the ramp to the point at which they can, I don't know if turn is the right word, but you know, turn and and enter the space. What what do they see? So in turning to enter the space, you're basically making a U-turn. And that means that you everything that you saw from one side, your your body is suddenly reoriented and you're looking back down the ramp. 
to enter the gallery. And because that ramp wall is now low, you see over the ramp wall back down the ramp as well. And what you see is a kind of divided space. You have two paths of procession available to you. The whole gallery space is divided by a long row of columns. And these columns, there's actually two rows of columns that have different column sizes, and it creates a kind of division. On the left-hand side, which is the ramp side, there's a very high ceiling with glass overhead, which is shared by the space of the ramp. And on the right-hand side, there's a very low ceiling. It's actually not that low. It's about 16 feet high, but it's an opaque, it's dark ceiling, and it feels low in contrast to the side, let's say, the the left-hand side of that gallery. So as you face it, you feel that division, and that division is further divided by a larger 45-degree turn wall volume and two very large diagonal axes, which are these black tubes bisected by effectively either large glass columns or glass beams, depending on the position of the piece. So let me jump in to say that I think what you just described are the two things you did. As in, the, as in the walls, you know, the 16-foot wall, you know, was already there. That condition preexisted your intervention in the space. But the black columns with the glass are the things you put in, right? Not exactly. So I think that, that there are sort of two layers of action on the space, if we want to think of it that way. One layer of action has to do with a kind of realignment of the existing envelope in such a way that I think it's not terribly evident to the visitor. One example would be the lowering of the ramp wall to be parallel to the ground plane. The top surface is parallel. The other would be the capturing of two columns in a larger rotated 45 degree column. And the last would be the changing of the perimeter of the room so that it's no longer a wedge shape, but in fact now has a rectangular perimeter, meaning that the, the wall that is furthest from the ramp wall is running parallel to the wall. And all of those things create a kind of envelope in which these two, what we want to call switches or elements exist. And they also house all of the structural anchoring positions of the work. So in some sense, the pieces, I like to think of it as like slightly massaged into a new form or the shape is, the the space is. And then on the other hand, the work then engages with that slightly changed contour of visible space, occupiable space. So as the viewer comes up the ramp and gets to the point of making that U-turn-ish into, into your space, what will that person see and be encouraged, if they so choose, to do? You'll see two glass columns or two glass beams that are supported by a long diagonal black bar. And will that glass be reflective? Will it be mirror-y? Will they immediately understand what they're seeing? Or will there be a moment of, as is often the case with your work, a profound feeling of awe in which one's stomach seems to move several feet at once? I think that you... I, I actually have no idea how you will experience it, um, except to say that I think you will feel a torque in the relationship of the existing space to it. Your whole body enters the space on the corner of these beams or columns. And the reason I'm saying beams or columns, I think needs to be clarified. The pieces rotate between 
a horizontal and a vertical position and occupy all the positions in between. But and again, as, we, d we don't mean that metaphorically. We mean that literally. Yes, they literally rotate and they are they in their horizontal position. They are seven feet off the ground. And so you walk under them. They basically articulate a long threshold space from one side of the space to another space. They almost divide the gallery in a kind of staggered way. These overhead beams, when they are in the horizontal position, they have vertical planes of glass on either side. So you can see through them from one side and from the opposite side of the gallery, if you were if you walked underneath them and turned around and looked back at them, they would be fully reflective and reflect out the facade wall, over the ramp, out the facade wall. That's the vertical, I mean, that is the horizontal position when they are at, acting as beams. But when they rotate or when a person chooses to touch them and push them gently around so that they stand in a vertical position, they become extensions of the existing column grid. And they actually become these long glass columns that you see on their corner because of their rotation to you at 45 degrees. Your work often involves an illusion that is revealed once the viewer is kind of physically willing to give themselves over to the work. You know, there's kind of a point at which when the viewer is willing to commit to the work that all of a sudden about 23 uncertainties snap into place, the piece reveals itself, and there's this moment of profound awe. Is that why this piece is turnable? Is that why you chose to make an, a, a, a piece that the viewer can physically activate? That's not, that's not why I chose to do it, but I do think it's, it's being in flux and it not having a fixed position in time is really a, an important aspect of the work. And it creates a layer of uncertainty in the experience of it that is for me as a viewer, incredibly exciting because it means that the space around it is also changing in response to it. Even if the space around it is fixed and appears not to be moving, there's a kind of uncertainty around the envelope as much as there's an uncertainty around it. I, I will say, Tyra, one thing that I've been learning and, and one of the things I find most exciting about being able to do a work like this is that it's teaching me as much as I am directing it, is that contemplation is not the primary mode of address. It's for the viewer or for you? I am I, anticipating for the viewer. I don't know. But my hunch is that when you touch something, you lose the distance and the kind of self-containment required for a contemplative gaze. and. I think that's really, really interesting in relation to inhabiting architecture and specifically in relation to doors. The, the reason these, these works started to move initially was that I was very interested in the problem of a threshold and the problem of a door and how the door created the opportunity for change that had to do with how your body navigated passing through space and I wanted the work to operate like a switch, basically, like a door that would allow you to enter one space and depart from another space or vice versa. And in this case, I think 
the way the eccentricity of this motion, which has really fascinated me now for quite some time, allows the work to exist as both a horizontal and a vertical element. And it also forces us to reconsider any primary orientation to to the space we're in and also then therefore also to this work itself or to the physical objects that we experience as the work. You, you mentioned doors. And of course, uh, you know, when, when we as humans go through doors, we typically reach out and we touch them and we push them or we turn a knob. That is to say, in some ways, our most physical engagement with moving through architecture is is through opening and then closing a door. Is that where you took the idea to have people interact with, with your objects from doors? Or was there a different reason, maybe even tactility, as simple as tactility is? Or was there a different reason you wanted to or chose to make something people could touch? It was entirely based on the notion of a door. And I think it was, just to say a little more about that, I think that I've never been interested in the idea of a kinetic or interactive artwork. But I have become increasingly interested in where we draw the line between a kinetic, let's say, building or the building as a machine versus those parts of a building which are highly interactive and formed by our motions, such as a chair or a door or a window or, let's say, air temperature. But somehow disappear as if they were not mechanized. And I've been having a very long-standing conversation about the possibility of the door swing as a time-based trace. So if you look at how doors are represented in architectural drawings, they have this circular path that the door travels in. And it's been interesting to think what happens when you're drawing an eccentric rotation of, of a door, that, that that simple circular path, first of all, is not so simple. It's actually the trace of a time-based activity crystallized into a single diagram. But when that, that motion becomes eccentric, meaning it doesn't follow the axis of gravity, it starts to bec- do all sorts of unusual things, such as the, the swing of these particular elements when traced would be an ellipse on, on, the, on the ground plane. So I think, to me, it became very, very interesting to think about how space mediated our engagement and our notion of memory and time and procession as it evolved, as it changed, and how every space had within it its own time, its own duration. Your work is often discussed or framed in the context of of theory, specifically architectural theory, and frankly, stuff I just don't understand. I don't have the education or intelligence or whatever to do it. And, and, and you yourself call the work a switch rather than a sculpture. Do you have interest in the work being considered in the context of painting and sculpture and art historical history, be it past or present, or is that not interesting to you? It's in, it's totally interesting to me. Okay, good, because I have a couple places I want to go. <laughs> a couple of very different places I want to go. You mentioned that you want the work to exist as both a horizontal and, and vertical element. And I think that when we get the images of the work up on, on, on the website, people will, will see how that works. I think that'll be, be really clear. If we think about sculpture history in, in the late 19th 
and early 20th century, especially French sculpture, there's this interest by, by Matisse and others in creating an object which, as the viewer moves around it, continues perfectly around it, that there's no one place to view it from. There's no really front and back as there is with, say, I don't know, a Henry Moore or something, um, or, you know, let alone something more plinthy, but that there is a continuation of visual exploration of form all the way around. You are not making representational sculpture in that same way, is in insisting on and in, in, in building, including through through something that you've applied for a patent for, <laughs> an object that has exists as both a horizontal and vertical element. Is that your way of maybe nodding back at that idea? Yes. You know, what strikes me about that idea is that there's a really critical missing component to that idea that has nothing to do, let's say, with this project. But this project, I would say, nods to what I see as the missing component. So what I see as missing from the formulation that that you're attributing to Matisse is that as we enter a space, as we enter any space, and I'm not specifically referring to a certain location, we we are established, we establish a front. We establish, there's established a, a sight line, which is the line of the eyes and has to do with the height of the floor. We establish a front, we establish a back. And the ramp is a perfect example of that because you walk up the ramp and you have one front and you turn, make a 180 degree turn and you have an entirely other front, right? And that's a, that is one of the beauties of this building. So to me, I think what's striking about the lack of information in what Matisse is formulating is that there is no container for the body. There is no space which, which is sort of the establishing shot of the whole film. And I would like to tie those two things together. I would like to tie together how the front and back are not simply endemic to the the thing, but are entirely dependent on the location of the body and the location of the light, the location of, let's say, the, the ground plane with the orientation of the object. In, 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 in you know, your own mind, when you wake up in the morning, think of yourself as a sculptor. Do you use the word sculptor in your own head? No. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that. I, I couldn't find any, any writings or anywhere on your website or anything in which... So, so obvious question perhaps, but why don't you like the word sculptor? It's not that I dislike the word, but it seems to me from my limited understanding of, of sculpture that contemporary sculpture seems to be about a kind of signification and that that signification is about how objects it, part of that has to do with the appropriation of things and the arrangement of things as a mode of establishing meaning. And I'm not sure I know how to engage with that problem. And I also, I also think when I look historically backwards, I imagine that the evolution of art, of the representation of and construction of architectural space grew from this potential for a flat surface to project spatial illusion. 
and both in its potential to do that and also in its limitations. So, for example, the limitation of perspectival space to show an, a regularity and scale and therefore reinventions of drawing systems where you had paraline projection that did not correspond with optics. And in that sense, I think that the work and the history of work that I'm thinking about has far more to do with everything from early Renaissance painting, pre-Renaissance painting, perhaps through early set design and architectural facade construction into architectural drafting and somehow sculpture as its own disciplinary move seems not central to, to that problem. My guest is Sarah Oppenheimer. We'll be right back after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore rare treasures from our vault. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the IRIS. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu slash IRIS. And now back to my conversation with Sarah Oppenheimer. Is there anything in artists of light and space, the Southern California light and space bunch. Is there anything in any of them that you found interesting or useful in your own work? Well, one artist that I have thought about extensively is Maria Nordman. And I think one of the reasons I've been interested in Maria Nordman is the possibility of interdependent flux of the spatial envelope with whatever it is that she is doing. And and it's been very hard for me to pin down precisely what she's doing, which is part of, I think, why I've stayed interested in her work for an extended period of time. So, yes, and I mean, I think that there's a lot of things about a number of those artists I've been interested in and also a, a lot of things about those artists I've been markedly disinterested in and have in some ways learned through my, let's say, descent. I've learned a lot through descent. Interesting about Maria Nordman before we get on to descent is that in her installations, quite often it's impossible to tell where architecture is and isn't, where the building is and isn't, where, you know, a wall or an opening in a wall is or isn't. Is that uncertainty and sense of dislocation some of what you're getting from her? 
Yes, I think that is definitely part of it. And I think it's also part of it is that, I mean, in the sense that there's no obvious boundary between her work and the world that her work occupies. I also wonder about that because I think in some ways it's really critical just cognitively to be able to, even if that, even if what we imagine is the boundary of the work to the world is not actually the thing where the boundary of the construction lies, which goes back to your earlier question, Tyler, about is this the work or is that the work? Even if it, I think it's important to be able to make something seem as if it has a boundary. So, so when you mentioned, you know, learning from light and space artists in a negative way and in, 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 in a way that dissents from their work, I had on my list of artists to possibly bring up Doug Wheeler, where when one stands before some of Wheeler's work, you can't tell where space begins or ends, where the physical construction, the building, the wall, the whatever begins or ends. I honestly sometimes feel like that way with your work, where I'm just so, you know, where my brain doesn't believe what my eyes are telling me. But it sounds like that might be a problem with Wheeler's work for you. Well, I think Wheeler's a really interesting example. And I actually also want to talk momentarily about Terrell's work as a, a point of dissent. But Wheeler's work, I think, points towards a, a question in painting that was first really illuminated for me by David Reed, I think, most articulately. But this obvious division between the field and a kind of field condition versus a compositional condition. And I think in many of the works I've seen by Wheeler, there is this attempt of a total immersive field. And in that sense, the boundary and the specificity of a space is entirely erased. It's dissolved. Yeah. And and I I am not interested in that. And I think Nordman is a, is a point where that existing the existing specificity of a location stays very present. She's not erasing it. She's not disappearing it. She's not necessarily. You can find the wall. You can find the wall, and you also the wall remains interesting. It it remains active. I think for me to just talk about dissent in relation to Terrell, I think in in the case of Terrell, while he may maintain a kind of compositional arrangement in many of his works, there is always this total obliteration of context. And that obliteration is essential for the, let's say, the, the ultimate location. And and I think for me, his project at the Guggenheim was the most telling because he created, in my opinion, a fabulous work on the perimeter, which was this extensive walkway along the ramp. But it ultimately was not what was considered the work. But it, it for me, turned the ramp space into a kind of junk space, like a cool Halcyon junk space, and created then this really bizarre notion of procession through this act of attempted erasure. And I think for me that that was an incredibly illuminating experience. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one of the other things that Terrell often insists upon is opening artworks with a trick, and that is requiring a 30 to 40 second period of your eyes to adjust to a darkened space before the work reveals itself to you and your work. I, I can, I can imagine that being a problem for you. <laughs> yes. I think that the, the, the specificity of where we are is fascinating and it's, is very important 
to allow that to make the work not make it doesn't it doesn't make the work specific to the place but it makes the place specific in its form of address it's it's the thing that establishes the front it's the thing that establishes the ground plane the lighting conditions it is the the determinant of matisse's orientation one more light and space era artist i I'm, i wonder if you have thoughts on is eric orr Yes, I, de- I definitely have thoughts on Eric Orr. I had a really striking experience with Eric Orr's piece at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, where Robin Clark had installed that piece in, it was like a large paper room. And it was a, a really striking experience because... Well, let me just back up really quick. It's a large paper room that you are encouraged to enter. It's not something you view from the outside. It's that you move into. That's right. So you never actually fully understand it as a paper room. You just understand it as a dark room. And you enter this very dark room and your eyes over a period of, I would say, anywhere from 10 minutes to many hours adjust to the dimness and you are slowly able to make out what surrounds you. And I think that piece... I had an amazing experience with it because it required time. And I think but not, but not in the way Terrell's require time. Terrell's require time so that your eyes allow you to see the piece. Whereas Orr's piece requires time in that you can kind of physically work out your relationship to the space. That's right. And in that case, the physical working out of the space, I think is largely in the eye, but I haven't thought about that piece for a while, but I do think it's very interesting to imagine that there are ways of working out a piece through time. And part of that has to do with being in a space over a period of time. And what does it mean for a work to expect that of a viewer? I mean, which raises a whole other question, which is what does it mean for a work to not even expect a person to see the piece in person. Because the or because the or piece seems not to be there even while you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, in its instantaneousness, it's total it's totally ineffective. But in it as a durational condition, it's really it's significant, I think. I think that piece is very interesting. And the very last artist related, at least in some ways, to the Light and Space Bunch I wanted to ask about is uh, is Bruce Nauman. There's a very certain physical relationship a viewer has in Nauman constructed environments. Nauman shows his work in a very specific way. Sometimes that's with a video camera. Sometimes that's just what the viewer learns by moving through the piece. And your work tends to show itself in a, a different way, but but there are no tricks. I think Nauman has such incredible range in his work and there are so many ways that his work has been significant to me over a long period of time. But since we were talking about the Eric Orr in San Diego, one thing that I did find really striking about the Green Corridor piece by Nauman is that on view alongside of the Orr piece was, I believe it was on view at the same time, was a set of Nauman's drawings of the Green Corridor work. Same time, yeah. And the thing that was so amazing to me was that he made this drawing with colored pencil where you could see 
the and I believe if I'm correct that 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 piece that Nauman piece was first installed in that museum or one of its earliest iterations and as you walk down that corridor you the view ends directly at this very large glass window that looks out over the ocean and it it was really extraordinary because you could see the green he had drawn the green inside the corridor but then surrounding that he had drawn red out the corridor space, which was, in in my understanding, a drawing of the after image of the color effect on the retina. So you would see green when you were processing, and then as you emerged from that greenness, or even as you were within the greenness, looking out of the greenness towards the water, that blue space of the water would appear very, very pink, because your eye would be compensating for all of the green. And I just was struck by the complexity of representation in the drawing. What did it mean to represent our optical field accurately versus photographically? It was, that was really a, a really significant idea about what it meant to make a record of a work that was uh, required a kind of physical presence. Many of these works we're discussing were in the exhibition Phenomenal, which I think was Robin Clark and Hugh Davies at MCA San Diego during uh, the first Pacific Standard Time series of shows, one of the really landmark exhibitions. I think it's becoming clear of the last couple decades. Well, let's turn to painting. Uh, we, we, I, I mentioned that um, I wanted to try there a while back. There are kind of two particular places in painting I wanted to ask you about and whether or not they're important to you or whether or not you intentionally taken things from. One is almost so obvious as to be embarrassing, and that's Trompe l'Oeil painting. Does the way in which painters in two dimensions can fool the eye interest you? I'm interested in the underlying system of that constructed space. So I would say no, not Trompe l'Oeil, because in some sense Trompe l'Oeil is like icing on a cake. I think that I'm very interested, for example, in the wedding portrait where you have this extended space that is highly, highly constructed and appears to be an optical, not exactly an optical illusion, but a, but a, a complex spatial rearrangement using a highly systemic rigor. And I'm interested also in how that then can be shifted to a non... Can, can I interrupt really quick? Are we talking about Jan van Eyck's Arnolfini portrait? Yes, exactly. How that can then, that perspectival shape, space can be shifted to, uh, away from what one might imagine as an optical space or a monocular space. And what does that do to how space is represented? So there's a whole history of painting, I think, that for me has to do with the early early games with and extensions of perspective that I'm extremely interested in and then later moves away from that into other rule-bound extensions of spatial representation. I would say Malevich is extremely interesting. I would say Destil is very interesting to me around those issues. I would say Escher's, Escher's sketchbooks are really interesting to me, but his prints are much less interesting to me. Piranesi... I thought you might say Peter de Hook. Oh, yes, that's also. And the procession of doorways 
into space, but also in the near ground into hooks, there are always things that are just right there. And, and where he gives a, a very, I don't know, I can't think of another painter who does it the way he did it, movement through very different and articulated spaces. I also wanted to ask you about surrealism. Every surrealist painter treats space differently. The two I wanted to ask about were Tongi and, and Kay Sage, maybe especially Sage, because there are lots of doors in her paintings. Are you interested in the way some surrealist painters construct space and architecture, not quite as folly, but just as something to toy with and use? Well, I haven't thought about surrealism terribly much in terms of spatial representation. I think the thing that I've found increasingly, and part of this has to do with my engagement with the Wexner, is that there, within the field of painting, there is the, there is at baseline the possibility of representing something rep recognizable as if you were looking at it with your eyes. And that the longer I spend looking at forms of representation that are not about versimilitude, but are actually about a kind of systemic logic, the richer that abstraction becomes to me. So, for example, the plan drawing, or, for example, the elevation. An elevation is closer to what you would see with your eyes. So... I think that very, and, I, and I'm extremely interested in where there was departure between these two worlds, departure from this um, making something look recognizable to making something knowable. I think there's a really wonderful text on that, I believe, by Molly Nesbitt about Duchamp and the, the development of technical drawing and how technical drawing, and also actually I think it's referred to in the text, this, this notion of a kind of gendered conception of technical drawing. What does it mean to study uh, drawing as a way of representing the world versus drawing as a way of knowing the thing? But technical drawing, I think, is a really extraordinary tool that somehow has fallen outside of painting, but is central to the possibility of representation in a different way. And surrealism particularly, and perhaps this is just my limited knowledge, but it, it particularly seems to rely on a kind of mimesis with what one sees. I, I think that everything you just said is why I asked about K-Stage. Oh, well, I'm not familiar with K-Sage, so clearly I should become familiar with her. For example, there's one, there's one sage called Hyphen, which is essentially a tower of doors in which they, they're in, in, in door-like apertures, in which the doors can't quite function because they are in a tower and because their hinges won't work because they'll bump into each other. I mean, there's a lot of the things that I think you just described are in her work. And I was even I, I, I was even ready with guesses about specific sages, but I will spare you. <laughs> oh, no, but I'm so excited because maybe you've just introduced me to a whole new world of, of things. K-Sage is also a very, very good example of an artist who has not gotten her due or her exhibition time because she came to prominence at a time where gender, you know, where her gender was not 
considered in the same way as her peers. One or one or two more things. In recent years, you've started using glass a lot more. In your early work, there was not a barrier from one side to the other, if you'll allow me to shortcut, you know, where if, if in theory, and I'm not suggesting anybody should ever do this, but if, you know, if you wanted to stick your hand through the piece, you could do that. Now there's glass. What about working with glass where there had previously been openness was interesting to you? And how much of that was the potential for reflection and non-reflection? And, you know, the, the dichotomy between sometimes you, you could get reflection and sometimes you could just look right through it. Well, glass is such an extraordinary material, and I have found it endlessly surprising and challenging, which I really have loved, actually. I I think I've become increasingly wedded to using glass as what is effectively a clear material, which clearly it's not a clear material, but... um, (laughs) But I I realize, you know, we often imagine that glass is marvelous when it has many different coatings. But what's most extraordinary about it is that you see through it. And that points towards its, its, I want to say, dependency, which is the thing that I'm most, perhaps most interested in, in general, as a general term, which is that things become dependent on other things. There's always this layered dependency. So like Matisse's front is dependent on where the door lies in the room, I would say the transparency or reflectivity of the glass is dependent on where light is in relation to the glass. So I became very interested in how uh, what we imagine to be clear window glass can in fact also be a mirror. And it also seems to be this very fragile material, but in fact can serve as a kind of structural, it's incredibly structurally significant when used in certain ways. And that is part of what I think is becoming increasingly interesting to me about its surprisingness. It's clear, it's load-bearing, it's reflective, it's light, it does all sorts of things, and it really is a highly dependent condition. I suppose all things are, but somehow it feels like it performs its dependency more ob- in a more obvious way. So we're talking about glass as, as a material. I also wonder if you're interested in how painters have painted glass. And I'm thinking of two painters in particular, say Robert Bechtel, who has a kind of a softer treatment, who, who paints a lot of glass, but has a softer treatment. And say a, a photorealist, a New York photo photorealist, so kind of a certain harder edge to it, like, like a Richard Estes, who uses it very much as a surface that you both see through, but also get a very hard reflection on. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, I've actually thought about it mostly in terms of Fishinger's animations. So Oscar Fishinger did, Oscar Fishinger was an amazing, actually, artist, I think. But he did these really extraordinary glass paintings where he would paint on glass. And as you probably are aware, that's a a very old animation technique that you film through glass, through these layers of painted glass. But the painted glass movies, because of the way he's painting on the glass and then layering the painting, they're constantly in flux, but you experience them as if they're occurring in a single plane in space. And so 
that to me was really, really significant in thinking about painted glass. How does looking through the glass, where is the camera in relation to the glass? How, as a tool of looking through and bouncing light, how does that work? He did a series of wax animations. Some of his earliest animations, I believe, were this hot wax. And I've always wondered if those were dripped onto a glass surface and then the wax was filmed through the underside of the glass. We'll try to have a fishing or animation or two on, on manpodcast.com. I, I see there are a few we might might be able to add. Finally, what is the title of the Wexner piece? Oh, that is a very good question. I think it's, <laughs> I always lose the numbers towards the end. You see, it, people are about to find out why it's a good question. <laughs> it's S337473. So you have a you have a titling system, and I'm going to uh, read off a description of your titling system from a conversation you had with Alexander Galloway and Bomb Magazine. Quote: The titles are generated from a type from a typology of transactions between spatial zones. Each discrete space is assigned a generic nomenclature: space A, space B, space C, and so on. Each digit in the title tracks different types of flow between the spaces. For example. A viewer may be able to look from space A to space B, but be unable to walk between them. My title describes this relationship. The integer in the third position describes sight. The integer in the fourth position describes circulation. In theory, the title of an artwork is a key to the orientation of the work within the array. End quote. So I can see why you'd have trouble remembering the title. At minimum, the titles make the work difficult to remember or to refer to in conversation or even in print. And when people like me, critics or historians, refer to your work, we inevitably end up referring to the Miami piece or the Mattress Factory piece <laughs> or the Wexner piece. Are the titles intentionally difficult to remember and understand in a way to force us to foreground the piece where it physically is? That's such a great question, Tyler, because I've never thought about that problem. No, they're not intentionally doing that, but I understand that they do do that. I think that what you're saying to me is really fascinating because they become about, if, if we're not to talk about what they refer to, which is a whole other issue, the sort of overarching method becomes about not naming the piece uh, in a symbolic term, although it is symbolic, obviously, but it, it's, not a, a sign, it's not assigning a kind of, I'm not sure how you'd say this, but it's not assigning some kind of linguistic reference to it in the same way. And I'm very happy with that condition, but I do see that then the default means that you refer to the location of the piece probably more than anything else. And I'm not sure I've never, because I've never really considered that to be one of the effects of the titles. I've never thought about what I think about that, but I, I'm interested in that. I think one of the things that the titles aim to do, but then almost do the opposite of in how you're describing it is they aim to make the work transposable so that it's not specific to site, in fact, so that it, it's a set of conditions that 
deal with how space is organized that could occur in one location, and then the same conditions could be redeployed in another location. But what you're saying, and what's so striking about what you're saying is that, in fact, what the, what the titles do is they make the work refer back to the place. Sarah Oppenheimer, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's a total pleasure. Thank you for talking with me, too. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Donald Sultan, The Disaster Paintings, illustrating robust man-made structures such as industrial plants and train cars. Sultan's works exhibit a level of fragility in their propensity to be unhinged by catastrophic events. Distinguished for combining such subject matter with industrial materials, such as tar and masonite tiles, the disaster paintings exemplify in both media and concept the vulnerability of the most progressive manufactured elements of modern culture. On view in Fort Worth through April 23rd. Also, focus Stanley Whitney. Taking the essentialist grid of minimalism as his cue, the artist's configurations are loose, uneven geometric lattices comprised of vibrant stacked color blocks, that vary in hue, shape, and the handling of the paint. More at themodern.org. Welcome back. Now a segment from my 2016 conversation with Richard Mizrock on his Border Cantos, a book and exhibition on which he collaborated with Mexican composer and performer Guillermo Galindo. From 2014 till about last year, Mizrock made pictures along the United States border with Mexico, the latest in a series of investigations of American deserts that make up what he calls his Desert Canto series. Given that the border has been in the news of late, I thought I'd re-air a segment of our conversation. Richard Mizrock, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, thanks, Tyler. It's good to be back. You're calling this new body of work and project Border Cantos. Before we get to the work itself, Let's start with the Desert Cantos concept to kind of set the stage for how you get yourself to the border, so to speak. I was reading the catalog of the MFA Houston exhibition of your 96, the, the 1996 Desert Cantos show, and I think Ann Wilkes-Tucker noted that there were then 18 sub-series of the series, at which point I became terrified of setting up the Cantos on my own. <laughs> So what does the Desert Cantos idea and concept encompass, and how do the Border Cantos projects fit in? Um, That's a good question. So the original Cantos began in 1979, and the simple premise was this, that most photographers historically, if you think of Life Magazine or even people like Robert Frank or Walker Evans, they they work in photo essays. It it borrows on the the literary tradition of, of the essay, and it's kind of a kind of a fairly short, cohesive idea, and it's, it's, it's uh, self-enclosed. And then I was reading this notion of the literary epic, the notion that 
basically that you take a bunch of these shorter essays and you link them together and suddenly you have a much more complex, richer idea. So, um, and you could think of uh, Ezra Pound's 50-year-long poem, The Cantos, or even Dante's uh, The Divine Com- Comedy is divided into cantos. It's, it's kind of like chapters. And that gave me the idea that rather than you know, photograph a series of floods or fires as you know, localized essays, is why not connect them in some larger body of work? And so then uh, I began creating multiple cantos. So I photographed fires, floods, uh, space shuttle landings, nuclear test sites. And my, the, the, the study that I was looking at was basically the West, American Western landscape, primarily the American desert landscape, as a sort of a metaphor for America and, and large, larger issues in the world. And, you know, and sometimes the work was political, sometimes it was social, cultural, uh, environmental, sometimes it was theoretical or conceptual and approach, di- different approaches to the landscape, but by putting them in, in this larger epic context of, of chapters, suddenly I could create a much more dense, rich look at a place. And so in 79, I began, I think, as of today, I'm up to 34 cantos. I think when I had the mid-career retrospective at the UC Museum of Fine Arts in 96, I think there was, I think you said there was maybe 18 or 14 at that point. And now I'm up to 34, and eventually, you know, I hope to, you know, put them all together in a, in a huge box set. One of the defining things about the, this project is that there's no end. It, it only ends when, when I end, when I stop working. Maybe somebody will pick up the ball after that, but just by definition, it's it's endless. And and then to bring it to the border campus uh, we're working on now, I would say that in 2004 I was wandering the American desert as I always do, and I came across a blue water barrel just sitting in the middle of the desert, really remote area with a, a a pole and a blue flag sticking out of it, and on the side of the barrel just said agua, and I didn't know which means uh, Spanish and uh, water in Spanish. And I didn't know at the time what that was, why that was there, or, or it was just so surreal. And after I just photographed it and put it away. And many of my projects start that way, that I'll just wander around and to see what I discover. And sometimes they don't go anywhere, and then sometimes they open up into a major project. So I shot that in 2004 and liked the image, but it was kind of an orphan. And I just put it away. And then in 2009, I was wandering in the desert, and I started noticing the militarization of the border. And I'd been aware of the U.S.-Mexico border. There had been a number of photographers that had photographed it over the years. People like Peter Goyne uh, did a, a great project early on. And back in those days, you know, there was a little, those, uh, these markers that indicated where the border was. There might be, you know, some small fences, uh, often just barbed wire fences, you know, some entry points. But it, it really wasn't kind of a monolithic, militarized border that has become basically since 9-11. And uh, when I saw this in 2009, these new walls being built and, you know, more border patrol and surveillance cameras and drones and, you know, all this new technology coming to this, the desert here, I, I immediately thought that this was a project. So I started photographing the wall. I also found along the border in California these human effigies. And basically what that was, somebody had taken a small town called Hakumba, which is on the California-Mexico border. I think it's a population of about 561 people. In the canyons and arroyos there, I found these scarecrow-like figures. Basically, they were 
uh, migrant clothing that were put on agave stalks. And agave are a plant that are indigenous to the Mexico side of the border. And they're right along the border, and there was no explanation. There was nobody around. They were just kind of haunting these, these gullies. And um, I didn't know if they were art. I didn't know, you know, if maybe it was an art project. Maybe it was warnings to migrants coming over the, the border. Maybe it was protests against the border patrol. There was just no way to know, and, but they're very haunting and, and very evocative. And so I, I did a series of photographs, a canto of those, called The Effigies. And then, you know, basically that's the way this, you know, the canto was built up. I had an effigy canto. Then uh, I was beginning to photograph the wall and its different manifestations along the border, and uh, that became the wall canto. The book that, and the exhibition now that are, that are traveling the U.S. have eight cantos in them. Yeah, and so that, that's basically the, the genesis of the, of the Canto project. We'll have an image of that Agua Blue Barrel picture from 2004 from Calexico on manpodcast.com. We'll have links also to bordercantos.com, which has uh, images of the pictures, Guillermo Galindo's sound pieces, and more. Uh, let, uh, let me, uh, if I can, I wanted to say something um, that I think uh, it's a good m- moment for that, which is, I mean, that's a good segue. One of the things about this project is it is a collaborative project, and along with my eight cantos, the project uh, comprises of a number of instruments and uh, sound pieces that my collaborator Guillermo Galindo has made. And essentially the way that worked was that I wandered along the 2,000-mile stretch of border wall, and as I was photographing, I found artifacts on the border, migrant backpacks, water bottles, tennis shoes, Border Patrol shotgun shells, uh, even sections of the border wall. And I would bring these back to Guillermo, and Guillermo would build instruments out of them and then, and then create these compositions that are just unearthly and, and just you know, driven by the, the, the haunting materials that I've had. And the effigies, and I'd photograph the effigies as I found them made by some anonymous person uh, on the border, but Guillermo then actually built an instrument based on, on the effigies, and it looks like one of the effigies, but it has strings, and he plays it with a bow, and he plucks it, and it evokes uh, these amazing sounds out of it. So that sets up the project wonderfully, and we're going to get into to specifics in those eight areas in a moment, but there's an obvious elephant in the room, and that is since you started this project and, and significantly more intensely in the last six months, the idea of a border wall, as endorsed by presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, has become, especially on the far right, a unifying, or maybe only on the far right, a unifying political issue. Your work here includes you know, several dozen pictures of a him, a border wall, between the U.S. and Mexico. You know, you couldn't have known in 2004 and 5 and 12 that, that, that where, where American political discourse was going in regards to a border wall. But when you hear this stuff now, given what you've made and what you're showing and what's in the book, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. It, it, it's uncanny, the, the amount of tension now that, that's suddenly on the subject. And Trump obviously did that. But, you know, we've been, Guillermo and I have been collaborating for four years. I actually started uh, shooting uh, in 2004. So, we were well under, we, you know, we had, had contracts with the museums and Aperture for the project two and a half years ago, well before anybody could even fathom the idea that Trump might become president, let alone, you know, him raising this issue. So that's purely, the timing is just crazy coincidence. But what I would say is, is whether Trump wins or 
whoever wins, it, and the you know the the border issue is going to be at the forefront, but nobody's going to be able to resolve it. And you know, five years from now, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, the issues around surrounding the border are going to be a major ma- major issue for for the United States. They're not going to go away. Essentially, the problem is is that national sovereignty as we know it in the past is has been completely violated now by global capitalism by the internet by terrorism by viruses notions of this sort of self-contained nation it it just it's not a viable model anymore it's a really big 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 issue that trump or hillary clinton or bernie nobody's going to be able to resolve those you know simple gestures or 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 the stuff that's been going on it's really a big seismic shift on the way nations are conceived. And a number of places, and you see this in Israel, and you see this other places as well, even in, in, you know, with the Syrian crisis, border walls are basically, they don't work. They're, they're just political spectacle. They're desperate attempts to, to hold in something or hold out something that it can't. You know, it's, just, it's just not a viable solution to a very big, complicated problem. So Trump has made this a really timely issue and something to really think about, but uh, people need to, are going to need to go deep on this and really rethink things in a big way. It's not, not even close. I mean, the, the border wall, for example, costs about 4 to $12 million a mile to build these new walls. That's just for construction. That doesn't, that's not enforcement. That's not all the other costs. That's just for construction. And two 18-year-old or 16-year-old girls can climb that wall in 18 seconds uh, without the aid of a, uh, of a ladder. People walk around the wall, they, they tunnel under it, they throw things over it, they can, you know, people and drugs can get here in many, many other ways. Building the wall is just a waste of taxpayer money, of national resources that could be used in so many other positive ways. And I think it's important to point out that there are not a few five or 10 mile stretches of wall along the Mexico-United States border. As maps in your book point out, there is a nearly contiguous wall between just southeast of El Paso and the Pacific Ocean. So it's it's an immense structure and system of steel structures. Well, and there's, there's a whole variety. And there's, you know, the, the border, the southern border is almost 2,000 miles, and there's roughly around 680 miles of actual wall construction. And most of that is west of Texas because Texas is really defined by the Rio Grande River, um, and make and that river actually makes it very difficult to build a viable wall. That's that's a, you know we can get into that, but but basically there are walls built. Sometimes they're low walls to keep they're called vehicle barriers, and they are you know basically Normandy style fences that stop you know Humvees or or four wheel drives uh, from getting through, but it doesn't stop people at all. And then there's other places where you have people walls, which are maybe 16 or 18 feet, and they take all different, you know, sometimes a wire mesh, sometimes they're steel. It's one of those steel walls that the 18-year-old girls climbed, for example. Yes, the newer walls, uh, they have slats in them, that's Nogales, and, you know, they left little spaces there, mostly to stop flooding, because a lot of these walls will, will flood, so they have to leave some space in there and also allow s- small animals to get through. But it is an environmental issue, too. Lots of ant species cannot get to their normal roaming grounds and things. It's, it's creating all kinds of environmental problems like that that nobody's even talking about. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.